the novelist's job is to um, is to imagine, and for me that that's a moral act as well, because you know, empathy, the ability to put oneself in somebody else's shoes, is the beginning of morality. So, and there have been studies done as well that reading fiction can make people more empathetic. So if you relinquish that responsibility, you know, it's not it's not like a you know, that's my right to write about something else. I that's my that's my responsibility as as a writer is to put myself into other people's shoes. With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season six of Bookshelfie, the podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. Join me and my incredible guests as we talk about the books you'll be adding to your 2023 reading list. Today, I'm joined by best-selling writer Monica Ali, who shot to fame with her literary phenomenon Brick Lane 20 years ago. She's since written four other books, Antelaho Blue, In the Kitchen, Untold Story and Love Marriage most recently. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and has been nominated for a long list of accolades, including the Booker Prize and the George Orwell Prize. She's also the chair of judges for the 2024 Women's Prize for Fiction. Monica is a patron of Hopscotch Women's Centre, a charity that was originally set up by Save the Children to support ethnic minority families who had come to join their partners in the UK. And we are delighted to welcome her to the podcast. Hello. Hi. Monica, I have just been chatting to you about the massive boxes of books that have arrived at your house, (laughs) ready, poised and waiting for you to read them um, as chair of judges for the Women's Prize of Fiction. How do you feel delving into that? Uh, a mixture of things. So it was um, great excitement. It's like Christmas, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's like a present. <laughs> boxes of books. And that's my favourite present to, to give or to receive. And also, to be honest, a little bit daunted because you have to read them all. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, But now, well, once I've got stuck in, as I now have, I'm just enjoying the process so much because there are especially I think by the time you get to my age I'm 56 you sort of think you know your tastes and you know which writers are going to interest you and maybe you get a little bit stuck in those channels so the joy for me is really opening myself out and seeing just what a broad range of fiction is being written at the moment and discovering writers who I might not of my own accord have picked out in a bookshop and finding myself surprised and delighted by them. Are there any genres that have opened your eyes that you just wouldn't have gravitated towards otherwise? It's not so much the case that I've avoided entire genres. (laughs) Maybe that's not true. I mean, for, for instance fantasy or books with an element of fantasy. I think that's what I'm discovering more, that there are elements of every single kind of genre that can be blended into create a very unique work so I might pick up a book and it's got ghosts in it or fantasy elements and I'm not sure that it's going to be for me and then it's just I get sucked in really fast yeah it's so utterly transporting and you you just didn't expect it and so often I wouldn't allow myself the chance to be transported like that it's such a joy it is it is as someone who writes for a living um, does your relationship with reading change depending on where you're at with a writing project like do you read much for research or inspiration or do you stop reading when you're writing I I don't stop reading when I'm writing I do a lot of reading for research part of the process that I really enjoy because it puts off that evil day when it's just you and the blank page (laughs) still researching it's fine I'm going to eat this out a little longer (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I I always do a lot of that and then when I'm actually writing because there comes a time when you have to put the research away and not rely on it because you've got to make an imaginative leap and not let the research show too much on the page when I've put 
the research work aside and I'm actually writing, I do still feel the need to read and I I still read fiction. I don't have that sort of anxiety of influence. But I've noticed that I tend to go back to books that I've read before. So I might revisit an old favourite, a classic, for instance. So maybe that does betray a little bit of um, anxiety around not being influenced by something new. Maybe that's a little bit of safety Mm. in going back to something that I know quite well already. You know what's going to happen. Which books do you sort of gravitate towards when you are reading for pleasure, when, when... That is just pure enjoyment. It's just for you, Monica. Well, you know, one of the reasons that I read is because I'm curious about the world. I want to find things out. So I tend to to gravitate towards those books. But what are those books? That could come in a number of forms, right? So it might be to do with a period of time in history, So it might be historical fiction or it might be about a culture that I don't know much about and I'm curious to find out about. So it can cover a a broad range of literature, really. And where do you steal those moments that are just for yourself? When when do you do your reading? Like most people, I read in bed (laughs) when I've gone to bed. It can feel like a very guilty pleasure, can't it, if you spend an afternoon reading but that's because we don't allow ourselves that time but I I always say there's no guilt in pleasure if you like something then it's good Uh, yeah well I've got a a puppy now so it's it's much harder for me to to focus Mm. on writing but what I can do while I'm playing with her with one hand is turn pages with another hand and (laughs) fit in some reading so I get two pleasures sometimes at the same time what tell me about your puppy Oh, she's a six-month-old border terrier called Noodle. I love, I love the name Noodle. <laughs> and presumably quite a lot of work if six-month-old and a terrier. Yes, <laughs> my goodness, she never stops. I mean, I'd forgotten what it's like to have a puppy. It's like having a toddler with sharp teeth. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into some of the books that she might be tugging at your arm while you're engrossed in. Uh, your first book, Shelby book today, is Pippi Longstocking by Astrid Lindgren. With her mismatched stockings, carrot-coloured hair and freckly face, not to mention superhuman strength and resilience, Pippi Longstocking is a cultural icon. Pippi lives in a house with a horse, a monkey, a suitcase full of gold, and no grown-ups to tell her what to do. She is an iconic character, um, but tell us why you chose this book. I think I was about six, or it could have been seven, Mm. when this was a book that we got out of the library. I grew up in Bolton, and every weekend my mum would take me to the library in town and we go to the children's section and get out as many books as we were allowed and one of we got out the first Pippi Longstocking book which I think is just called Pippi Longstocking and I read it and I was so so taken by this girl who lives without any adult supervision and doesn't conform to any of the norms of society that I couldn't wait to get back the next week and get, there were another two books that I knew I'd spotted. And I've just loved her ever since. And I read, I read them, I think I read them to my daughter and then she read them again herself. But yeah, she's such a superb heroine. Did you read her? I seem to remember her as a character who was present in my childhood, but I can't remember reading the book or reading any of the three books I must have done. I must have been read them or been made aware of her. I think there have been movies and mm. cartoons and so on. So that might have seeped into, yeah. you might have seen those. I don't think I've seen those, but I remember the, the books quite clearly, actually, um, because I had that second time around with my daughter. And I think she's a heroine who sort of lasts through the ages. I mean, it was yeah. in the 1940s when they were originally... But quite forward thinking really forward thinking so Pippi is brave and very strong as you say she can lift up her house with one arm (laughs) you know this sort of superhuman strength she's rebellious she's defiant um she's 
really witty and cheeky, but there's a lot of those traits which were sort of often attributed to boys. But she's a she's a, a girl, and you know, th- I think that's why she appealed to me so much. Mm. That and the fact that when the police came round to try and take her to a children's home, she gets <laughs> she gets the two policemen one in each hand and just carries them out. And I just remember being so thrilled by that, that she could overcome, you know, this sort of unnecessary, as I saw it, adult supervision. And she and she protects other children from being bullied. But she's not a goody two-shoes either. Mm. She tells tall tales. She gets herself into all sorts of mischief. You know, so I enjoyed all of that. And I think also... I've read The Famous Five as well, which I also really enjoyed, but there's a tomboy in that, isn't there, called George. I've related much less to that because I didn't like the idea of you had to sort of act like a boy to do have those adventures, whereas I don't think... This, I didn't read Pippi as a tomboy as such. She was just a girl with all those traits. She was just Pippi Longstaff. Yeah. Thing. She, you can be who you are. I think there was um, there's a great power in in realizing that as a child. Do you remember when you read it, thinking, "Okay, I identify with this character." Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I mean, I wanted to be her. Yeah. I think. <laughs> yes. I mean, the the superhuman strength element is also really it's attractive. <laughs> really attractive. She goes to a circus. I think, in one of the books. She definitely goes to a circus. And she beats the, the circus strongman. You know, that's I, I remember being bowled over mm. by that. What were you like as, as a child when you were reading this book around the age of, of, of eight? Uh, were, you, were you good at school? Were you, were you rebellious? I was, I was not, like, Pippi Longstocking at all. You know, I thought I was... I, mean, I was very quick at school and, you know, did well in my schoolwork I was constantly being told that I was lippy or answering back or I'd get in trouble but I couldn't I didn't feel that I I I mean adults say stupid things all the time right Mm. I mean I'm sure I did to my children and I thought it was legitimate to point out those stupid (laughs) things I am with you on this and I used to get in so much trouble but I, I maintain, I still stand by it, question everything. Because yes. they don't always know what they're talking about. No, we often don't. <laughs> no, I know that now. <laughs> you were born in Dhaka, East Pakistan, now Bangladesh, um, and then grew up in Bolton, like you, you mentioned. So what was early life like for you? What are your earliest memories? Uh, you know, I was talking about this with my mum the other day because she was asking me if I remembered anything about Dhaka. I left when I was three and I said I think that my first memories apart from a few sort of fragmentary memories of from when we actually came over to the UK but even then it's hard to know if those memories from the first months in the UK are inherited memories Mm. or whether you've actually recalled them so I don't really know what my my own first memories are but I think there were yes that sort of traumatic time of fleeing from a war um yeah I mentioned in in the introduction that you're a patron of Hopscotch Women's Centre which is a charity set up to support ethnic minority families who had to come to join their partners in the UK um is this important to you because of your own family's experience of moving to the UK yes so Hopscotch serves the local community around Camden, and that includes quite a lot of Bangladeshi families, also Somalis, Eastern European women and children as well. And, I mean, they do a fantastic job. They they work with victims of domestic violence, Afghan refugee women, uh, people with complex needs, helping people to get back into employment, or just with simple things like, you know, how to get the bus or how to use money in a cafe and things like that because some of the women who've come at an early age uh, have been very cloistered and then maybe their husband dies or their husband 
sometimes leaves them and then they don't have even those basic skills so they do such fantastic work and I'm really you know pleased to be able to support that work. Monica it's time to talk about your second book today which is Emma by Jane Austen. Emma Woodhouse is one of Austen's most captivating and vivid characters. Beautiful, clever, rich and irrepressibly witty. Emma organises the lives of the inhabitants of her sleepy little village and plays matchmaker with devastating effect. With its imperfect but charming heroine and its witty and subtle exploration of relationships, Emma is often seen as Jane Austen's most flawless work. When did you read it? I just started senior school, maybe I was 11 or 12, and I fell in love with Emma straight away, which is sort of ironic because Jane Austen famously wrote in one of her many letters to her relatives that I'm going to take a heroine that no one will much like. But I loved Emma, and you're right that she is flawless as a creation, but she has many flaws as a person, <laughs> as, as a person, which makes her only the more lovable. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so when the, the the story opens, it has a very famous long opening sentence: "Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich," and it ends something like had very had had very little to trouble or vex her in her nearly twenty one years, and you know from that that. Trouble is ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Here comes the vexation. <laughs> and you, exactly. And you know that she's, you know, a little bit spoilt. She definitely is. And Emma uh, had a governess called Miss Taylor who has just got married to Mr. Weston. And Emma gives herself the credit for that matchmaking because she's the one who introduced them and she decides that matchmaking is a skill that she would like to put into practice more often and hone that skill and she gets warned against this by Mr Knightley who is the eventual love interest but she goes ahead and she makes so many terrible (laughs) blunders but she's just sort of adorable isn't she? When you were 12, 13, reading this, how did it influence you? How did it impact you as a piece of work? It's the first book that I reread. Okay. that's a, that, And that means a lot that, that, you know, you feel compelled to do that. Yes. You want more? So I would say that in a way it's the book that taught me how to read. Because in rereading, you see so much more. So Austen has this very clever way. I mean, she, she's off, you know, often credited with creating the free, free indirect style. So, or, you know, colloquially, that's a close third person reading. And in doing that, you learn to see through the character's eyes and also simultaneously see beyond what the character could see. So that is, you know, a definition of dramatic irony. And I didn't know those terms. And (laughs) at the time, I was nowhere near um, knowing them. But I started, I just started to understand by rereading how the writer was letting us see that sort of double perspective and how she was filtering everything through the consciousness of her protagonist and some other characters you know we flip between perspectives so it's the book that really taught me how to read and it taught me the pleasures of rereading because you know you read to find out what's going to happen next when you read it again you know what's going to happen next but there's a different pleasure in that you see all the signs so for instance the piano the 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 secret gift of the piano to Jane Fairfax (laughs) The first time you read it, you know, you're not in on the the secret. But of course, it's come from Frank Churchill and she's secretly engaged to Frank Churchill. And the second time you read it, the pleasure is in discovering all those clues that you think you've actually missed all along. And there are so many things that you pick out on a second, third, fourth reading. I mean, the last time I read it, I was thinking about... When Harriet, who is Emma's protege, she's only 17 years old, and Emma encourages her 
to, to think that she might be able to marry Mr. Elton, who's this sort of odious, oleaginous clergyman. And, of course, that all goes horribly wrong. And he's such a social snob. He's never going to look twice at Harriet, who, who's a you know girl of modest means. And there's a scene where... Harriet has this ceremonial burning of the contents of this little box that she's collected of little tokens from Mr Elton, except they're not tokens from him at all. They're like a bit of bandage that was used when he cut his finger. It's not even the bandage that was actually used. It was the bit of the excess that was <laughs> cut off. And then there's a, pe a pencil without any lead that he has used at one point and at the in the first few readings I, I think I thought oh well she's really genuinely heartbroken about Mr Elton going off and marrying somebody else but actually that's not at all you know that's not really the case it was a totally hollow thing this you know that there wasn't a relationship and the whole thing was as hollow as that empty pencil right the pencil without any lead so you know, you can go back to her again and again, Jane Austen. You see that nothing is incidental. You see the cleverness of the patterning. And it's, yeah, so I'm I'm still reading her and finding new things. It's so interesting that you bring up the joys of rereading and the revelations in rereading, having said that when you're writing, you tend to return to books that you've read before yeah. and realising that perhaps there's something in what you get from that experience that is enriching during writing that's obviously just enriching overall yeah um that's clever of you <laughs> <laughs> yes, it sort of just came up sense. without you know it, it, maybe you don't maybe when you know we're not actively thinking okay i need to reread this book for this reason but it's giving you something mm. and as a writer I mean, to have read this book at the age of 11, 12, 13, I mean, it, did you know you wanted to be a writer then? Was it even a even a prospect on your horizon? No, no. I mean, absolutely not. I mean, I was always a voracious reader, but the idea that I could be a writer mm. um, never, ever occurred to me until much later. And I think that the seeds of that were planted actually by, am I allowed to mention a book by a man? You you may. It, sometimes, it does sometimes happen on this podcast and it's, it's okay. <laughs> um, when I read The Buddha of Suburbia in my 20s, mm. that was actually the first time I thought, oh, is it is possible to have a background not that dissimilar from my own? I mean, you know, Hanif was writing about a a Pakistani father and a, a white mother. And that was, I mean, not that I'd acted on it straight away, but that was the first little inkling that I had that it was possible to be me and or somebody like me and to write. And to write Brick Lane, for, for that to have the impact and the success that it did, what was that experience like for you as, as a new writer? You know, I, looking back on it, I think I was a bit sort of rabbit in the headlights. Mm. My children were still very young. I wrote Brick Lane when well, my son was two when I started it, two and a half. I was, I was, you know, I had a baby in arms. My daughter was just a baby. And so they were still very little when Brick Lane came out. And I was I was sort of in a whirlwind and simultaneously very concerned to be a present, fully focused mother. So I didn't enjoy it as much as I should have done. It's often the case, though, isn't it? You can't take stock until way after and you're like, oh, that happened. Yes, yeah. But of course, you know, it was a wonderful thing that it, it did so well and it was loved by so many people and it's now a, an A-level set text, which is bringing it to a new generation of readers. And, you know, I talked to groups of six formers about it who are finding new ways to relate to it and read it. And so, you know, it's, yeah, it's a marvellous thing. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether shaken in a cocktail, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Check out baileys.com for our favourite Bailey's recipes. 
Have you just been diagnosed with breast cancer? Do you have a million questions in your head but you don't know who to turn to? I'm Dr. Liz O'Riordan, the breast surgeon with breast cancer, and my new podcast, So Now I've Got Breast Cancer, is the only one you need. Every show, with the help of my expert guests, I'm answering your questions, and no topic is off limits. So listen now to season one of So Now I've Got Breast Cancer. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Time to talk about your third book, Shelfie book, which is Middlemarch by George Eliot, taking place in the years leading up to the first reform bill of 1832. Middlemarch explores nearly every subject of concern to modern life. Art, religion, science, politics, self, society, human relationships. Considered an exemplar of Victorian realism, while also being a novel of deeply considered characters, confined in this plot of social tension in a setting that is this microcosm of a time of larger societal change. Can you tell us a bit about this book and and why you chose it? Yeah, so I read it when I was in my later teens, 15, 16, something like that. And the first time I read it, I really identified, I think, with Dorothy. I mean, there is so it's such a huge novel and there are lots of storylines. And Dorothy is sort of the central character and I, I stuck very much with her and I was always impatient to get back to her. And she, again, is a very young heroine, like Emma we've just been talking about. I think she's 20, 21. And she marries this... Um, sort of cold-hearted, monstrous clergyman, Casubon, who is sort of horrified. So <laughs> I have this horrified fascination. Like, why are you doing this? You know, she's going to come into her own fortune. So unlike lots of heroines of novels of that era, it wasn't sort of a choice between marry this man or become a governess or face poverty. She had her own fortune. So I was always, you know, wrestling with this puzzle, like, why is she doing this? But it's because she thinks of him as a good man. And she comes to realise that she's made a terrible blunder. Um, She's made a terrible mistake. And the reason that she becomes a real heroine is because although she suffers sort of you know, humiliation and pain and so on. She continues to want to do good in the world and she continues to want to find the best in people. And I think that's what draws everyone to her. But that first time I read it, I, I wasn't sophisticated enough to, to realise that Bond is impotent. You know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't get that in that first reading. So I was always sort of full of horror of this desiccated old man pouring away at poor young Dorothea. The theme of relationships um, and marriage is um, prevalent throughout this novel and it's a subject that you address in your most recent novel, Love Marriage, which I absolutely loved, um, read earlier this year. Did did Elliot's portrayal of disastrous marriages, did did it pique your interest at all? I mean, it sounds like you were very curious about how, why, why? as something that would then lead you to write about it? Well, perhaps. I mean, I think the thing with Austen as well, and actually lots of women writers, that you can get to things about society through a domestic lens. So whether you're reading Middlemarch or whether you're reading Jane Austen, it doesn't stop the canvas. I mean, Jane Austen famously said, oh, I, you know, paint my little, I'm going to have to paraphrase, but I, I paint with a, a brush on a, on a piece of ivory sort of thing with fine, small portraits. But, you know, actually she knew that she was doing something much bigger than that because through those very intimate portraits, you get a lot about society and you definitely have that in Middlemarch. I mean, it is a broad canvas. So, you know, there's stuff about the death of George IV, there's the stuff about the great reform bill of 1830-whatever it was, um, outbreaks of cholera, the impending railway that's that are going to be built. So you get a lot about the stuff of society at the time. A lot of the references I didn't understand on that first reading, and I'd, I, I, you know, I'd get lost in it, frankly. But it was good training because I was so invested in 
Dorothea, also Lydgate, it didn't matter to me. I knew that I didn't understand the half of it, but I knew that it was worth pursuing. And I think that's a, that was a big part of my literary education. So, you know, I, I had a, then a period of reading a lot of the Russian greats, like Tolstoy and stuff. And when you get to the Battle of Borodino as a 16-year-old girl, you're not that interested, or I wasn't that interested. But I think that training with reading Middlemarch and being wi willing to grapple with the hard stuff, also willing to admit that you don't get it all, but it doesn't matter. There's still a lot to yeah. be. So you're learning and you're also learning not to be so arrogant as to think that you should get it all. Central to Middlemarch um, is the idea that the novel's heroine, Dorothea, cannot hope to achieve heroic stature as she lives in the wrong time amidst it says the conditions of an imperfect social state. To what extent do you think it's the writer's responsibility to question and challenge the status quo? Is it ever your intention when you set out to write a novel? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I mean, I always start my novels with characters. Um, I don't start with... I want to, to change the world, yeah. thing or change the world, because you know that's a sort of vainglorious hope, isn't yeah. it? So I start with the characters, but naturally the things that are of interest to me come out through those characters, and often those characters perhaps do end up challenging things about the status quo or giving an alternative perspective. So the answer to your question is sort of. Not intentionally. <laughs> I get that. I feel like that's often the case um, in all pursuits, whether, you know, writing or other creative pursuits or otherwise. <laughs> yes. As soon as you come up against anything, you're like, well, that's not OK. Yes. Because we should question things yes. as human beings. And that is very likely to filter into our work as well. Into the work, exactly. Exactly that. Filter into the work yeah. is a good way of putting it. You've always been... Um, a, a brilliant advocate of freedom of speech um, and for some time an active member as well of PEN, the human rights charity who works, uh, who supports writers at risk of persecution. Um, and you've also talked about how society is currently a marketplace for outrage, which I feel every time I open any social media. Do you feel that there are any topics? I don't open social media. No, that's the best way to do it. Yes. I'm, I'm learning also to do that too. <laughs> it's just it's just people ch shouting over each other and not listening. And... Um, it's not good for your mental health. Yeah. Um, are there any topics or characters that you feel are off limits? I think once you start thinking like that, you, you know, we're, we're all doomed. I mean, the the, the novelist's job is to um, is to imagine, and for me, that that's a moral act as well, because you know, empathy, the ability to put oneself in somebody else's shoes, is the beginning of morality so and there have been studies done as well that reading fiction can make people more empathetic so if you relinquish that responsibility you know it's not it's not like a you know that's my right to write about something else either that's my that's my responsibility as as a writer is to put myself into other people's shoes your fourth book shelfie book monica is the bottle factory outing by Beryl Bainbridge. Frida and Brenda spend their days working in an Italian-run wine bottling factory. A work outing offers promise for Frida and terror for Brenda. Passions run high on a chilly day of freedom and life after the outing never returns to normal. Inspired by author Beryl Bainbridge's own experiences of working at a London wine factory in the 1970s, the Bottle Factory outing examines issues of friendship and consent in this offbeat, haunting, yet hilarious novel. Why is this book important to you? So as I said, I went through this period in my teens of reading a lot of the classics and, you know, a lot of them were men from Tolstoy to Balzac to Dickens to whoever else. And then I think I was about 18, I was about to go off to college and 
I picked up this book from the library and it was like a breath of fresh air. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she, it's such a sort of wickedly funny book. And if I told you the plot, which I won't, it sounds like a farce. <laughs> you know, it is a farce in, in some ways, but there was all that. But it, it's such an acute observation of English moors, isn't it? So, Brenda, who is, I think she's 32, divorced, she's been brought up in a sort of middle class household. She's been privately educated. That, that's something that's reiterated quite a few times. And when Mr. Rossi, the assistant manager of the bottle factory, is great. I mean, just groping her in the cellars. She, she. I mean, it's it's awful black humour. She's got all these layers of clothes because it's so cold in the factory, and she's got newspaper stuffed beneath her clothes. And he's trying to get his hands on her flesh, and bits of newspaper are falling out all over the place. But we, it's been explained to us that. Brenda has been brought up to think that it's polite to say no when you mean yes and yes when you mean no. Do you want another piece of cake? If you want it, it's polite to say no mm. so as not to look greedy. And if you don't want it so as not to look rude, mm -hmm. you, say, <laughs> you say yeah. So she's sort of stifled by mm. this, you know, weird English... Um, sense of man manners so it is a comedy of manners in that in that way um and it's very very funny sexual politics and gender dynamics they create high tension in this book brenda and free they have quite different takes um on men they have different um i guess manners like like you've just said um and the men they work with in the factory so frida has romantic designs on a manager brenda tries to keep her head down um, do you think Beryl was actually quite ahead of her time with this book? Yes, yes, absolutely. Also, another reason why it really appealed to me, I think, I mean, it is just brilliant prose. The style is sort of deceptively simple. I mean, they're simple declarative short sentences often. But, you know, don't let that fool you into thinking that this is not a very enormously sophisticated piece of literature. But another reason that it appealed to me is that it's this portrait of an immigrant community that I'd never come across, I'd never thought about before, which is the Italian immigrants set in London and the owner of the factory, Panagotti or something like that, he has imported basically a number of poor peasants from Italy to work in the bottle factory and they club together to buy houses. They call for their relatives to come over, you know, cousins and wives and children. The children are now starting to grow up. Some of them are going off to university. Frida is very keen to get the factory unionised, I mean, in quite comical ways because of the terrible working conditions. The workers themselves are not interested because to them, although the conditions are terrible, it's better than what they had at home. So I started to see parallels with Asian communities, you know, the things about kinship, about clubbing together to buy houses, about the children bettering themselves, all of those things. So it was really fascinating to me that there was this whole other group, the Italians from an earlier era, who had gone through something similar. You know, things about food and language and all of that. So I think that was another reason it really appealed to me. The simple sentences, which are not so simple because it's just, it, that's just a way of writing. You know, the prose is, mm. is rich. Um, do, do you think that if this book had been written by a man, it would have been viewed as simple in any way, shape or form? <laughs> Um, I do think that Bainbridge, although she, you know, was fated, she's shortlisted for the book uh, five times, I think. I still think she was an underrated yeah. author. In spite of of consistent accolades. Yes, yes. I, I think, you know, uh, I, I don't doubt that. I think you're absolutely correct. I, th I think she's a whole level of sophistication ahead of many of those contemporaries and I don't think that she had the 
claim that, or, or, or even the readership, although she has many loyal readers, yeah, I think she's underrated. On the subject of reception of, of the work, after you published Untold Story in 2011, a novel which imagines a Princess Diana-like character's post-fame life after faking her own death, you said some of the reactions to the book made you experience an obliteration of self. Can you tell us what you meant by this? Well, I think I just had a massive failure of confidence. I mean, I stopped writing for some time. I mean, it was 10 years between my that last book and Love Marriage coming out in 2022. Not that I stopped writing for the whole of that time, but I did for a period just stop writing. But I found that when I wasn't writing at all, I got depressed. So I, stopped, so I started writing again. It seems that writing isn't optional for me. I mean, it's something that I have to do. What made you start writing again? How did you find the motivation to, to do it? Well, I actually tried to write for TV, which has never come to fruition, but that's okay. I started reading lots of screenplays and um, drama scripts. I think basically because I was watching a lot of TV, which is something that depressed people sometimes do. I'm, I'm watching, you know, really, some really fantastic dramas. So I got, I got curious and interested about how that worked and I'd like to learn new things. So I started doing that and I worked with a number of production companies and had scripts commissioned and so on. So that just allowed me to rediscover the joys of writing that eventually led me back to you know, what is my real work, which is writing a novel. And then I was playing around with these two different stories, one about this woman, Harriet, who is a sort of liberal intelligentsia, Primrose Hill inhabitant, and another one about Yasmin, who's a junior doctor, who's engaged to another doctor. And they were Yasmin has a, an Indian heritage, and they were two worlds that, you know, were entirely separate, two different stories I was sort of playing with. And then I just had this moment of thinking, what if I put them together? And then I knew that I had my material and then the story and just sort of, you know, it was the thing that I then had to write with those two worlds coming together. When you stopped writing for, for your own, I mean, outside of, of, of coming back to it as a, as a job, as work, how did you find the motivation in yourself, inspire yourself to feel whole while doing it? I think it was just the realisation that I have to write to, to... I don't know why I have to write, but I do have to write. I mean, that's, yeah. that, that's my way of making sense of the world, of processing things. It's, it's a necessary creative outlet. And I had to let go of that idea of it's, it's something that's too difficult and that I can't deal with. I mean, I have to deal with all of the different aspects of it because it's a necessary part of of who I am. Yeah. It's time to talk now about your fifth bookshelfy book, which is The Group by Mary McCarthy, a novel that follows the lives of eight graduates known simply to their classmates as The Group, an eclectic mix of personalities and upbringings. After graduation and a wedding, the women begin their adult lives. It's only when one of them dies that they all come back together again to mourn the loss of a friend, a confidant, and most importantly, a member of the group. Why did you pick this one? I picked this because it's a classic, modern classic, that I hadn't read until I finished writing Love Marriage. And I picked it up at random in a bookshop and I knew all about it. Well, I thought I knew all about it because it's, you know, such as its fame. But I sort of picked it up with the intention of like filling a hole in my literary landscape or education rather than expecting it to really grip me. Because what I knew about it was that it had been pu published in the early 60s. It had spent a couple of you know, years on the bestseller list. It had been a huge success and that it had lots of sex in it. And that <laughs> it was considered shocking at the time. It was banned in several countries. But I thought, well, you know, if the main thing is about sex and contraception and motherhood and it's written in the 60s and set in the 20s and 30s, how gripping is it going to be? You know, we've moved on. 
And I was so utterly wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So utterly wrong about that. I mean, the most famous scene is when Dottie, one of the members of the group, gets deflowered. They talk about defloration by this sort of louche misogynist, which is a bit of a tongue twister to say, called Dick. And um, <laughs> the uh, it's as forthright and as brutal and as funny as, you know, if it had been written today. I mean, it, she writes with such precision about the emotions that are involved and the embarrassment of the characters. But crucially, McCarthy herself is not at all embarrassed. You know, yeah. she, she, she goes for it full throttle. It's a remarkable book, which are you talking about, you know, if it had been written by a man or for, if, it, but if it had been from a male perspective, mm. how might it be differently perceived? Because again, it's that thing of coming through things from the female lens, which led some critics like Norman Mailer, most famously, to dismiss it as a trivial lady writer's book, which, you know, it, it is sort of astonishing. He, he, his complaint was that the characters, I'm going to have to paraphrase, don't have the means or the desire to affect change. So his complaint was that it looked at small, trivial things but actually it doesn't do that at all I mean things like motherhood are not trivial it's not a small thing (laughs) first right for for a start but also she does deal with big themes like the sort of loss of faith and progress you know following a period when you know things seemingly were just getting better and better and then there's the crash of the the, the early 30s and there's another war and so on so that those are big themes which are running through the characters lives and then in terms of the capital p sort of politics you know she does deal with things like fdr's new deal the spanish civil war but we get that through the perspective of the characters and because of that, you've got a sort of skewering of male pomposity about the big issues of the day. Mm. So one of the characters has a married lover and he's a supporter of the Spanish communists in the um, side and the Spanish Civil War. And he's a supporter of Stalin as well. And, you know, <laughs> his lover, Polly, I think, she hardly sort of dares, to, you know, the, the politics are for the men. But of course, she sees through, you know, she thinks that the lover should have listened um, more carefully about the Moscow show trials. And she doesn't know whether she's being silly or not. But we know mm. who's the dupe, you know, in that and who's got the more discerning eye. So the way that McCarthy approaches those big issues is is not through the men who are participating more actively and pontificating it's through the female gaze but that doesn't make it any less acute in fact it makes it more acute well but sex and motherhood are political and also inextricably linked to loss of faith in progress i mean i am losing faith in progress when it comes to sex <laughs> in, in in politics and and we look at what's happening around the world that the, these are big themes they are big issues they're they're, hu- they're huge themes and they're themes that haven't gone away so i think when you read the group you just do become a little bit more alive and alert to all the canton yeah. hypocrisy and the ways that women um then and now, and now are yeah. uh, oppressed and not listened to You once proclaimed in an interview that male white writers have a freedom to write what they want, but for women writers, the opposite is true. Do you still think that? Do you think that continues to be the case? I think that's been challenged in in some ways, just in very recent years. You know, the the issue that you referred to earlier about, you know, do you have the right to write about anything you choose? There's been some pushback to writers who have chosen to 
write about cultures that are other than their own. But I still think that the balance for writers of colour is it's starting to change. I think there is a little bit more awareness that sort of saying that writers of colour are only of interest if they're writing about, to put it in the most crude terms, guns and gangs if you're a black writer or arranged marriages if you're um, coming from a Muslim Asian background. But I think we're starting to see that just being eaten away at. I think those things, they're always difficult because they're not explicit. So it's, you know, it's harder to challenge when it's not explicit. But I think that challenge is being gradually made. I do have to ask, Monica, um, I read that you had to conquer your own fears of writing sex scenes for your fifth novel, For Love Marriage. But you said actually when we introduced the group that this was something you read after having finished writing Love Marriage. So I can't... Yeah. Unfortunately, there weren't any tips you could have picked up from from it. How did you find that? Oh, God. It was... um, You know, I'd written about an affair before. So Nazneen in Brick Lane has an affair, but it was quite in keeping with her character as a quite a devout woman to close the door at the point where they, she gets into bed. <laughs> I didn't actually need to go there. But with Yasmin in Love Marriage, sex is a part of how she explores her identity yeah. and who she is in the world and how she wants to be in the world and how constrained she has been by society's expectations about getting in touch with her own desires, which, you know, she is also sometimes guilty of suppressing. So I couldn't sort of just bottle out of it and I knew I had to do it, but I was dreading it. But actually when it, when it came down to doing it, I actually quite enjoyed it. It was it was fun to do. And I think because it's integral to the character building, it was fine. And then the period sex scene was actually really fun. <laughs> I was, you know what, I was like, oh, yeah, this, this is on the page. And you know what? As it should be. <laughs> As it should be. As it should be. <laughs> What a selection you've brought to us today. So we've had The Group by Mary McCarthy. We've had Bottle Factory Outing by Beryl Bainbridge. Middlemarch by George Elliott. Emma by Jane Austen. And Pippi Longstocking by Astrid Lindgren. But Monica, if you had to choose just one of those books as a favourite, which would it be and why? I think I would have to... It's really difficult, but I would would take Emma because... As I said earlier, Emma is the book that really taught me how to read. So I treasure it for for that reason, amongst many other reasons. Well, I wish you the very best of luck in all the reading you're about to do as you uh, (laughs) (laughs) take up your role as Chair of Judges of the Women's Prize for Fiction 2024. And it's been such an absolute pleasure to get to chat to you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Vicky. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm Vic Hope and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.